Well, I'm sure sometimes you felt in relationships like you somebody was maybe uh, mad at you, but they maybe weren't saying it, or it's like you did something and you expected from what they did that they would have an reaction of anger. And so you're just wondering this question, are they mad at me? Is that person mad at me? And maybe they're being a little colder to you. Maybe they're not uh, saying much to you, and usually they're a little more bubbly and friendly, and you're just like, are they mad at me? Is there something I did? And when that's happened, when we're worried someone's mad at us, or we actually know they're mad at us, we sense this tension, there's this conflict, there's these unresolved issues, and we may uh, lack joy, we may lack peace. We may want to kind of hide from them and avoid them, like, okay, so-and-so's in the break room right now, I think they're mad at me, so I'm just going to take my break ten minutes later, or I'm not going to go to that event or family gathering because so-and-so's going to be there, or you go and you just kind of be like, I'm going to sit away in the corner and not next to them at the table. And we might just be afraid of how are they going to treat me? And we have, we get stressed, maybe worried, feel anxious. Uh, we might prepare for the worst or prepare our defense like, well, if they're mad at me about that, here's all the reasons that I can tell them they shouldn't be mad at me and this is the reason I did it and if they just understand that, then they won't be mad at me anymore. And so I think sometimes we ask the question about somebody like, are we good? Like, are we okay? Or are you mad at me about something? And so if that's the case with people, how much more would it be the case if God is the one that we're wondering if he's mad at us? Like, is he mad at me? How do I know if he's mad at me? What's he going to do if he's mad at me? And we're going to look at this passage in Romans chapter 5, verses 1 through 11. And, you know, I think sometimes the Bible can just become like this book full of just words, uh, as opposed to a book that's filled with actually 66 different books. It's like a little mini ancient <laughs> library. And the Romans, this letter to the Romans, is a letter that a man named Paul, who started off hating Jesus and hating Jesus' followers, killing them, and then he all of a sudden had this dramatic conversion where he actually met Jesus alive and well on a, on a road while he's going off to some place, and he meets Jesus, and then he converts. He says, I, I've, been, I've had it all wrong. Jesus really is Lord. Jesus really is uh, the king we've all been waiting for. And so after he gets converted, he, a while later he goes and uh, visits all these towns, and he says, my job is to tell people about Jesus who don't know him yet. I'm going to leave Jerusalem, I'm going to leave Israel, and I'm going to go to these other places. I'm going to try to spread the news about Jesus uh, as far as I can get. And one of those places that he actually hadn't visited at this point was Rome, which would have been you know, the capital of the Roman Empire. And he wanted to get there, and he writes this letter ahead of his anticipated trip there. And it's one of the longest letters that he wrote, and it's also one of the most full uh, explanations of what the gospel is in, in Paul's view, which you know isn't any different from Jesus' view or Peter's view or any of the other books, but Paul laying out, here's what the gospel is, sends this huge letter uh, to the church in Rome and has them read it and, in anticipation of his visit. And so the question is that we want, I want you to think about as we go through these, these 11 verses of this letter is, uh, is God mad at you? That's the question I want you to think about. Is God mad at you, and why or why not? And you might want to just write that down or you know, put it, type it in a note on your phone, but is God mad at you, and why or why not? And so if we look at Romans chapter 5, verse 1, it starts off with these words. Therefore, since we've been justified by faith, and a therefore means that what 
came before it, he's now going to tell us an implication of what's coming forward. You know, here's, the, here's what happened, therefore this is what's true, or this is what you should do, or this is how you should act. And he, he tells us what the therefore is based on. Since we've been justified by faith, therefore, here's what that means. But we've got to back up, because the first uh, chapter 1, verse 18, to chapter 4, verse 25, that's really how you'd sum up those four chapters. Since we've been justified by faith. He's been explaining that throughout those four chapters. It summarizes the teaching. And so really those four chapters uh, tell us bad news. God is mad at you, and rightfully so. That's basically the news of those four chapters. God is mad at you, and rightfully so. And some of the key verses, chapter 1, verse 18, says, The wrath of God is being revealed against all ungodliness and unrighteousness. And wrath, don't think of that as like, Oh man, you know, some, uh, some person walking by my lawn... I uh, let their dog poop in my lawn, and now I'm mad. That's, that's not the kind of mad that God has. It's like this just anger at the breaking of the laws that he set forth for humanity and for this world. It's just this, it's a, a just anger, not a like flying off the handle, one little thing happened anger. And so it's been revealed, God's anger against ungodliness and unrighteousness. And then one Chapter 1, verse 20 says, well, we have no excuse for not honoring God, for not thanking him, for not worshiping him, for not serving him, because uh, creation reveals his glory. Like, if we want the biggest thing in the universe to give our devotion to, it would be God. And creation itself, this world we live in, shows this God is powerful. He's glorious. You should give your life to him. And then uh, chapter 2, verse 1 says, no excuse again. Uh, We have no excuse for not obeying God's commands because they've either been made known, written in the Bible, uh, so we know his commands do this, or we know it in our conscience that God built us all with it, that we have this internal conscience that tells us what's right and what's wrong. So we have no excuse for not obeying God's commands. We can't say, well, I didn't know them, because we do know them. And they're basically boiled down to love God and love others. That's what he tells us. Love God with your whole heart. Love other people as you love yourself. That's what it boils down to. And this prayer uh, from the Book of Common Prayer really sets a, a, summarizes this problem well that we have. And so it's praying to God for forgiveness. It says, Most merciful God, we confess that we've sinned against you in thought, word, and deed, by what we've done, by what we've left undone. We have not loved you with our whole heart. We have not loved our neighbors as ourselves. And so notice, we've sinned against you in thought, word, and deed. We might think like, well, I didn't do anything mean to them. And then it's like, well, saying mean things, you know, that hurts too. Well, I didn't say anything mean to them. I only thought it. And he says, no, we sin in thought, word, and deed. And we're unloving in our thoughts, words, and deeds toward God and toward other people. And then it says, uh, by what we've done, so we can do things that are bad, but also by what we've left undone, that we withhold doing something loving when there would be a loving thing to do. And then it says, we've not loved you with our whole heart, We've not loved our neighbors as ourselves. And then chapter 3, verse 23, just sums up this whole issue. All have fallen short of the glory of God. There's no distinction. Every human being, Jew, Gentile, you know, black, white, whatever, everyone has fallen short. There's no distinction amongst people. That Everyone's fallen short of the glory of God. And so this word justified, coming back to chapter 5, verse 1, it says that uh, since we've been justified by faith, justified is a legal law court language. If you're standing in an ancient court, you can have one of two outcomes. You can be condemned, uh, and so pronounced guilty, or you can be justified, which is to be pronounced righteous. We would usually say innocent, but justify means to 
declare someone righteous. Like we had this court proceeding and we've gone through it and now you're declared righteous. You did not do this thing. You don't have to have the punishment for it. And what Paul is saying in this letter, he says, no one in God's law court, we've all fallen short. We all will be condemned. No one in God's law court will be declared righteous. No one will be justified because everyone has broken God's laws many times. And so he has his just anger toward that uh, breaking of laws, hurting each other, turning from him. And so the question we usually ask is, how could a loving God, how could a loving and just God ever send anyone to hell, uh, ever punish someone eternally? And the question the Bible's answering is, how could a loving and just God not send everyone to hell? We've all fallen short in God's law court if we've broken his commands and we are condemned as guilty. How in the world would God not then send us all to serve our sentence uh, for breaking his laws over and over and over and over and over again when we know all of them? How in the world could God be just and loving if he let us just go in that situation? And so the bad news is God is mad at you, and rightfully so. That's basically the summarization. But there is good news in those chapters too. Chapter 3, verses 21 Starting verse 21, it says, But now the righteousness of God has been manifested apart from the law, although the law and the prophets bear witness to it. So righteousness from God, apart from the law, means a righteousness that we don't get declared righteous by keeping all the laws. This isn't from the law, from us keeping all the commands, all the things God says we should do, all the loving things he says we should do, and all the unloving things he says we shouldn't do. Not righteousness that, but a righteousness from God not without keeping all the laws, which is like, well, that doesn't make sense. If we broke all the laws, we shouldn't be declared righteous or innocent, right? We should be guilty. How, but how, so how does this come about? Verse 22 says, The righteousness of God through faith in Jesus Christ for all who believe. For there is no distinction for all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. So this is not a righteousness of our own, but a righteousness given by God through faith in Jesus Christ for all who believe. And everyone needs it. No one will be declared righteous without it. And then verses 24 through 25, it's like, well, how did that happen? How did God provide this? It says, 24, verse 24, uh, all who believe and are justified by his grace as a gift through the redemption that is in Christ Jesus, whom God put forward as a propitiation by his blood to be remo- received by faith. And so it's by his grace as a gift that he's given us something undeserved and unearned. If it was righteousness by the law, us keeping all the commands, all the rules, all the laws, then that would be something we've earned. But now he's saying, no, this is a righteousness as a free gift, not something that you've done yourself. And it says, through the redemption that is in Christ Jesus. And it says, whom God put forward as a propitiation uh, by his blood. And propitiation is just one of those big $10 words in the Bible that just basically means turns away wrath. And so we heard verse... 1, chapter 18, God's wrath is revealed against all of us lawbreakers. His justice is coming for us. But then he's saying, uh, Jesus has been put forward as someone to turn away wrath. God is right, angry at you, and rightfully so. But then Jesus comes and takes the penalty in our pa- place. He takes the wrath of God for breaking God's laws. And it says, to be received by faith. That was something we receive, not something we work on. And so it's like we receive that being declared righteous from God uh, himself. And so here's the good news of those chapters. Though God has every right to condemn you as guilty, he's provided for you a way to be declared righteous, to be justified. And so that's where verse, chapter 5, verse 1 starts. Uh, since we have been justified. So if you're declared righteous, what is true now? That's what we're answering this morning. 
So starting in verse 1, it says, of chapter 5, Therefore, since we've been justified by God, or by faith, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. And so, one outcome is, since we've been justified, declared righteous, that you know, even though we broke all the laws, God still declares us righteous, so he sees us as not lawbreakers, but as people who are free of that sentence. Uh, it says he, we have peace with God. And this is more of a relational term. Ju- term. Justified is more of a law court term. Uh, peace is more of a relational term, that uh, we have peace with God. There's no hostility between of God towards us. There's uh, no, he's not against us. And so we have peace with God. And then verse 2, through him we have also obtained access by faith into this grace in which we now stand. And so he says we've obtained this access. We're standing in something. We're standing in a new place. Before, we were standing under uh, guilty people who are deserving of that, the penalty for that. But now we're standing in grace. It, and it means God's not only not mad, but now we're standing in his undeserved, unearned favor. That's what grace is. It's favoring. Now think about things that you favor. You, you like them. You get excited about them. Your favorite pizza or your favorite shoes or whatever. It's like we stand in God's undeserved, unearned favor. It's like you were here, but now you're just standing in this pool of God's not only not mad at you, he's so happy about you that we're in, he favors us and that he wants to be with us and to bless us and love us. Then the rest of verse 2, it says, and we rejoice in the hope, in hope of the glory of God. We have to ask, what, well, what is God's glory? And really it just means the outward shining of who he is, of all of his godness kind of shining out, you know, like the sun kind of shines out its warmth and its radiance. It's like all of who God is, his glory is the shining out of all that, of who he is. And it's all of his godness. And God made us to be reflections of who he is, to be reflections of his glory. That is, we look like mirrors, as we look at him in all of his glory, we become reflections of that. But what he said in chapter 3, verse 23, when we've turned from him, now all have fallen short of his glory, that we're supposed to be able to see him and be with him as he is, and also to reflect his glory out as we look to him as like mirrors. But we've all fallen short of that. We no longer do that anymore because we've turned from him. But this verse turns it around. Now his glory is our hope, the hope of being with God in his glory, pre- glorious presence and the hope of becoming like God, uh, reflections of his glory once again. And now the glory of God is no longer a standard that condemns us, but a hope we rejoice in. Because God's wrath was revealed against ungodliness. And, but now, as we are hoping in God's glory, and he's changing us from the inside out, now we are no longer we're becoming less and less ungodly. We're becoming uh, less and less the type of people against whom God's wrath would be against. Because we are becoming more like him, not falling short of that glory anymore. We're reflecting it more and more, becoming people who less and less are falling short of his glory, less and less deserving of wrath. But then he goes on, this might be surprising, in verse 3, not only that, but we rejoice in our sufferings. Well, that's uh, interesting. Like, I don't know, how hard is it to rejoice in our sufferings, right, when we're feeling, uh, when our body is breaking down, when we're having some sort of disease or sickness or illness, or we just are... Uh, being people are ridiculing us because of our faith, and we might feel like life is just so hard. I'm suffering. This is terrible. I don't want this anymore. And he's saying, rejoice in your sufferings that you're experiencing now. And the default belief of, well, I think many of us sometimes too, but of the Jewish people, 
uh, was that if you're suffering, you must have done something wrong, and now God's punishing you. If you're suffering, you must have done something wrong, and God's punishing you now. And so what did you do? And maybe today we'd say, well, that's karma, right? What goes around comes around. It's like if you're doing bad stuff, bad stuff's going to happen to you. Karma's going to come after you. God's going to come after you. And it's just bad. But what he's saying, suffering now doesn't mean that God's mad at you or that you're falling short, that you haven't done something wrong and therefore you're suffering. It says just because you're suffering doesn't mean God's mad at you. And the, you know, the uh, key book in the Old Testament would be the book of Job where Job is suffering innocently. And he has these friends come around and they are saying like, well, okay, Job, what'd you do? Come on, get it out. Tell, you, tell us what bad thing you did because you wouldn't be suffering like this if you hadn't done something bad. And the whole Bible teaches this, that suffering is not always the cause of us doing something bad. And so if we're suffering, it can, doesn't mean God's mad at us, Paul's saying. And then he goes on, but why is that? Why would he say that? Because it says, verse 3, not only that, but we rejoice in our sufferings. Why? Knowing that suffering produces endurance. And endurance produces character. And character produces hope. So there's a string of things here that it's like we know the suffering is going to produce endurance. And the endurance is going to produce character. And the character is going to produce hope. And there's a couple, several times in the Bible where uh, we're told to rejoice in our sufferings. Why? Because we know this truth. In this case, rejoice in your sufferings because you know what it's doing for you, that God is using it for your good, that it's not being wasted. That doesn't mean God's mad at you. And you can kind of think of us like statues that have been defaced, like, I don't know, graffiti and you know, moss and stuff growing on it and eggs or whatever. Like, imagine just a defaced statue. And it needs to be scraped and scrubbed and buffed to return it back to its original glory before it got defaced. And that's what's happening with us, that the pain in our lives has a purpose, that we are these statues that were supposed to be images of God reflecting his likeness, but now we've been defaced. We've defaced ourselves. Other people have defaced us, and now there's that hard, painful work of scrubbing and repairing and cleaning and restoring us to our original glory. And so God, we're told, uses suffering to restore, restore us as a reflection of his glory. And later in chapter 8, he says, everyone who's been justified will also be glorified. That if you've been declared righteous now, the path you're on is that God is now using the experience of your life to make you once again into a reflection of his glory. We don't become God, uh, but we're reflections of his glory. And so suffering, he says here, instead of taking our hope, actually produces and deepens hope. That in the end, you're suffering. You know God's not mad at you. In the end, it produces hope uh, in God's future for us. You could kind of think of it like God's our workout coach. Uh, maybe Steve will do a demonstration. No, I'm just kidding. Uh, he, he's a fitness trainer. But um, God's kind of our workout coach. And like, as our workout coach, he puts us through pain in order so that when we look in the mirror, we look more like him. It's probably not what you do, Steve. Like, guess what? You could look like me someday. One day we'll look in the mirror. But it's like God is our workout coach. He's like, you, I want to make you look like me, your image and your likeness my likeness. And so I'm putting you through this because I'm helping you to get back to the way I created you. And then he says uh, later, in, so verse 5 again, and hope does not put us to shame. And we might ask, well, okay, you know, we might think about like, well, I hope, I don't know, the Blackhawks win something. And it's like, well, it's not like something that's for sure going to happen. It's kind of like a wish or a desire. 
And there's like lots of things we might hope happens. Like I hope it's a good week and I hope it's good weather. And, you know, it's like those are things that aren't really for sure. But he's saying uh, your hope's not going to put you to shame. Like me hoping uh, the, the Packers win. Sorry, I'm a Packer fan. Sorry, it's out now. Now you can all leave if you need to. But the last year is like, you know, we hoped the Packers would do a little better. And they had seemed like some lucky times or whatever. But it was like we might hope they go to the Super Bowl or hope they win this game. But at the end of it, if they haven't won, then it's like, well, that hope kind of put me to shame. Like I was kind of banking on that. I was putting, you know, uh, excitement into that. And it just kind of disappointed me. And he's saying hope does not put us to shame. Well, how can you be so sure? How can you be so sure that suffering now doesn't mean God's mad at me and then when I die or when Jesus returns, I'm going to see him and he's going to say, oh, I tried to get your attention with all that suffering but it didn't, so that I was mad at you, but you didn't respond. But he says it's not going to uh, put us to shame. Why? It says because God's love has been poured into our hearts through the Holy Spirit who has been given to us. And so God's love, his love for us has been poured into our hearts. And the Holy Spirit seals that love. We're sealed as God's own, that we are his, that we belong to him. And he belongs to us, that we're in this relationship with him. And so we might ask, well, why would this love give us such assurance? Why would God's love, what about that can actually assure us that he's not going to be mad at us in the future? Like, what if he changes his mind? What if he, you know, we just are like, well, I thought you'd be per- turn out better, but you didn't, and so now I'm, I'm done. Why does God's love for us give us assurance? Well, it's because of the kind of love it is. And so this middle, in the middle here, we have this, Paul describes what God's love is like, verses 6 through 8. He says, uh, for while we are still weak, at the right time Christ died for the ungodly. And so God's love is, while we were still weak, and we could also say, while we are still ungodly, Christ, Jesus Christ, God's Son, died for the weak and the ungodly. And then in verse 7, he says, For one will scarcely die for a righteous person, though perhaps for a good person one would dare even to die. And so he's kind of like talking about, like, okay, let's talk about the best of human love. Um, maybe you'd die for a good person. Maybe you'd die for a righteous person. Like, okay, they deserve it. Like, I'll, I'll, I'll die for them. And he says, you know, maybe and perhaps... And sometimes maybe you might, soldiers, you might say, like, well, why'd you go and do that? Put your life at risk. And you might say, well, they would have done it for me. And so I did it for them. And that's like the best of human love. Like, we know someone will do this thing for us, and so maybe we're willing to do it for them. But Paul says, you know, God's is even better. Verse 8, he says, in, in contrast, but God shows his love for us, and that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. It's like the best of human love. You might die for a righteous or good person. He says, but look, God's love is this. While we were still sinners, while we were still weak, while we were still ungodly, at that time Christ died for us. It wasn't when we had gotten cleaned up. He didn't die because we were righteous or because we were good. He died when he, we had all these issues going on for us. And so it's that our goodness and righteousness are not why God loves us. And so the reason his love assures us is because he won't condemn us or reject us in the future. And why is that? It's because of the type of people that God loves. His love is the foundation of our hope, our peace with him, our right standing with him. And we'll come back to this a little bit at the end. And so it goes into another section about, well, okay, the first section about since we've been justified, declared righteous, he says kind of what's true of you right now? This is what's true. But then now in these last verses, verses 9 
through 11, he's describing, well, what will be true of you in the future? So he says in verse 9, Since therefore we've now been justified by his blood, much more shall we be saved by him from the wrath of God. And so since you've been justified right now, you can expect that in the future you shall be saved from his wrath by Jesus. And so justified now means no fear of wrath, no fear of God going to be angry about my sin in the future. That we're declared righteous, Romans chapter 8, verse 1 says there's no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. Like that's forever the status. God will never condemn someone who is trusted in Christ and is following him as their Lord. And so we have peace with God that he talked about earlier. God has nothing to hold against us, that he took care of it through Jesus and that so we don't have to worry about it. Then verse 10 says, For if while we were enemies we were reconciled to God by the death of his son, much more now that we are reconciled shall we be saved by his life. So because now we've been reconciled by his death, in the future we shall be saved by his life. When he talks about reconciliation here. And the results of reconciliation are peace. Verse 1, when you're reconciled with somebody, like you're mad at each other, there's conflict, and then you reconcile, now there's peace between you. There's no longer hostility, enmity, you know, division, alienation. Uh, and, but also, that reconciliation requires forgiveness. And forgiveness always comes at a cost. Because if you forgive someone for the wrong they've done to you, you're saying, I'm not going to get payback for that. I'm gonna, not going to try to get you to make that up to me. I'm saying, you're forgiven, and whatever hurt you had done to me, whatever damage you had done to me, I'm just going to say, like, I'm just going to take that and pay for it. I'm not going to make you pay for it. So the cost of our forgiveness with God was Jesus' life, his death. By his death, we are reconciled. And we're told then, by his life, we will be uh, saved. And Jesus isn't dead and gone. He's resurrected, which means we can be saved by him. It's not just like, oh, he died a long time ago. I hope that works. You know, he said it was going to work, and then he died. I mean, I'm going to die, and I don't think my life is going to pay for the sins of anybody. But Jesus said, my life is going to pay for your sins. I've come to save you. And that would be really easy to say and sound really crazy, unless the second part actually happened too. I'm going to die, and I'll be raised again three days later. And so because Jesus was resurrected, uh, he was right about that, then we know he was telling the truth about what his death would do. Because anybody can say they're dying for somebody else's wrongdoings. Uh, but to be resurrected then, too, was like God's approval. Like, yes, he was telling the truth. This is why he was sent. This is what I wanted to do through him. So we can be saved by him. So Good Friday, he died to pay a penalty. And at Easter, he's raised to new life. He's living proof of our new status with God. And in verse 11, he says, More than that, we also rejoice in God through our Lord Jesus Christ, through whom we have now received reconciliation. And so we're reconciled. Is God mad if you're reconciled? No, he's not mad. Once God reconciles us, when he says, I'm going to forgive you, I'm not looking to pay you back. I'm not going to try to you know, get this out of you. Like, yeah, well, we can, I can treat you nice again, but you're going to have to do my laundry for a year or something like that. That's an office episode if anybody was curious. Uh, but he, it's like, is he mad? No. And so every day you wake up with a ladder standing in front of you. Not literally, but you know, a spiritual ladder. <laughs> That's news to me. There's a ladder. Uh, I'm going to put one in each of your homes so when you wake up tomorrow. But every day 
you wake up with this ladder you're standing at the bottom of. And the top is where you're expected to be, where God expects you to be, His glory, being in line with that. And you're standing at the bottom, and every morning you wake up, you have to decide, what am I going to do with that gap? This is where I'm supposed to be, and this is where I am. And what am I going to do about that? How am I going to deal with that gap? And what, what is it like to feel like God is mad at you all the time because you're always falling short of what he expects of you? Here's the ladder, and I wake up another day, God. I know I'm falling short. I need to get up that ladder to meet your standard so that I can be, you won't be mad at me. And faith in Jesus means we stop relying on ourselves to fill that gap to be good enough for God's love. We just say, I don't need to fill it because you've already declared me righteous, not based on what I do, but based on what Jesus has done for me. And so maybe, are you falling short? Are you too weak to fill that gap yourself? Have you lived an ungodly life? Do you feel like, man, I'm such a sinner. Like I have just messed up everything this week or in your life. Felt like you've turned your back on God, run from him, ignored him, disregarded him, disobeyed him. But there's good news. If that's you, there's good news. You are the exact kind of person that God loves. Romans 5.8. He tells us those are the kind of people he loves. That's who his love is for. And we might say, God, you could never love someone like me. I'm just too bad. I'm too yucky. I've done too many things. God, you could never love someone like me. And maybe you maybe could write this down in your bulletin or in your phone. How would you complete this sentence? I'm too blank. For God to love me. I'm too blank for God to love me. I'm too much of a failure. I'm too sinful. I'm too dumb. I just don't get this stuff. I'm too whatever it is. I'm too blank for God to love me. And the good news is that God has already proven his love for someone like you. That, and the reality is that there are only people like you. People who would fill in that blank with something of why Uh, God could not love someone like me. We were told in this passage, while we were weak, while we were ungodly, while we were sinners, while we were enemies, what did God do? We're told he showed his love for us in sending his son to die for us. And so the good news is that God really loves people like you. He really loves people like me. He really loves people like us. And there are only people like us. People who are sinful and weak and ungodly and who have lived as enemies of God turning our back on him. And so we can hear, we, there, in this passage, the word uh, joy was brought up several times. And there's a joy in being reconciled to God. There's a joy in having peace with God. There's a joy in not having to wonder, is God mad at me? Is he going to someday just lash out at me? And there's, we're standing in grace, we're told. There's no wrath. This was our reality before, that we were breaking God's laws. We were condemned. We were under his just wrath. Uh, God was mad at us, and rightfully so. And now we're in this whole no, new mode of being. We are standing in grace, God's undeserved, unearned favor. And there's a real relief in knowing that God isn't mad at me, and I'm not the one who made him not mad. Does that make sense? Like, well, God's not mad at me because I had a really good week this week. Like, man, I don't know if I even sinned once. You know, I think I loved everybody. I was so good, and I think this week, man, God's not mad at me. And then it's like, all of a sudden, Monday comes, and that person at work who always just kind of stresses you out, doesn't get their work done, and all of a sudden you're like, ah, you just have this moment where you're like, okay, that wasn't what I was supposed to do. Okay, i got to kind of work back, get a streak of good days together. 
oh, God's not mad at me anymore. But what is the relief that we can be like, God's not mad at me anymore, and I didn't make him not mad, that he's the one who made himself not mad, that he said, I'm going to offer you forgiveness. I will pay for what you've done against me on my own, not of anything you do. And then we just receive that. And he says, rejoice in hope of the glory of God. Rejoice in your sufferings. Rejoice in God. And this word, there's a couple of words that can be uh, translated rejoice in the New Testament in Greek. And this word is a, an interesting one. Other times it's uh, translated as boast, that I can boast in God. I can boast in my sufferings. I can boast in hope of the glory of God. And really it's talking about this joyful confidence. And so why can we have this joyful confidence in those things? Why can I have joyful confidence in God? Why can I have joyful confidence in my sufferings? Why can I have joyful confidence in the future of seeing God's glory face to face? Why do I have to, why can I not be afraid of that? What has made it possible? It's because God really loves people like you, really loves people like me, really loves people like us. And we can say, if somebody asks us, are you good with God? We can say, yeah, <laughs> I am good with God. Because if we've trusted in Jesus and said, yeah, God, I want that forgiveness. I'm not going to try to climb the ladder myself. I'm, I just want to be right with you and I want to live in relationship with you. And it's like, I'm good with God. I could have had a terrible week. And I can still say, I'm good with God, though. He doesn't regret what he's done for me. And so the answer to how much does God love you is always more than I deserve. If, any, if you have to ask yourself that every day, how much does God love me today? The answer is always way more than I deserve. Because it's not based on how lovable we are. It's based on his love that he said, I'm going to give it to people like you. That's who I want to love. And so faith is saying yes to God's love. And God shows his love for us in that while we are still blank, whatever it is, that he said, I'm, yeah, I'm going to take care of this if you'll let me. And he, Christ died for us. And so some of us need to be convinced that we are weak, ungodly, sinful enemies of God. Some of us need to be convinced of that because sometimes we say, I'm, I'm not a weak, sinful, ungodly enemy of God. I've lived a pretty good life. Like, I don't really do bad things. And so some of us need to be convinced that that's for us. Remember, all have sinned and fallen short of the God, glory of God. Everyone, no distinction, no person. Even if you think you've lived a good life, if you're doing it apart from loving God, uh, then that's the, the very first commandment, love God with your whole heart. And so we sometimes kind of like, okay, here's like this little box. And if I just stay in this box and not do the super bad things out here, um, it's, God's good with me. But it's not the case because if, unless our whole life is lived as, I just love you, God, I want to give it all to you, uh, then we're falling short. And so some of us need to be convinced that we're weak, ungodly, sinful enemies of God. And some of us need to be convinced that God could love a weak, ungodly, sinful enemy like me. And both of us, both need to be convinced that the cross was for me. Christ died for me. The death of God's Son was for me. I mean, even those statements are just crazy. Christ, it's not Jesus' last name, it's a title from the Old Testament, the king that the... Israel was waiting for and that the whole world was waiting for who would the whole world would find refuge in him and so the king died for me wait a second what you know what we would probably I don't think there'll be a time when we say like President Biden died for me like he gave his life for me like this is the king of the world saying he died for me or 
the death of God's son. I mean, that's just like such a radical thing to even say that like God uh, came and took on human flesh and then died for me, that God would die for me. We talked about it on Good Friday, that uh, it's a funeral that we remember every year. God's funeral. Acts 20 says uh, the blood of God. God shed his own blood for us. Jesus wasn't like this third party that said, hey, God, let's kind of give him a break. Let's kind of relax some of this stuff. Like, uh, don't worry, I'll take care of it. No, Jesus is fully God and became fully human in order to take on our sins. So the Son of God died. We all need to be convinced that the cross was for me. Jesus' death was for me. He was doing that so that I could be reconciled to God and have peace with God and have a relationship with God. Let's pray. Father, would you help us just really be convinced that what you did on the cross was for us, each of us individually, for us as a church. Lord, you've shown us your love. You've demonstrated that you've proved it. And so would you help us to let you love us in the way you want to. In your son's name we pray. Amen.